Before we can celebrate the new life of Easter, we have to deal with the death of Good Friday. Good Friday was messy, it was gruesome, it was painful to watch, and we'd rather not deal with it. But before we can deal with the message of the empty tomb, we have to go to Calvary and see the sorrow of Good Friday and the weight of Good Friday, let it just rest in our minds and souls. As the old song says, we must survey the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Now, I have a little Good Friday ritual. Every Good Friday, I watch the flogging scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. It is graphic. It is gruesome. You could not show it here in church because it is not something that kids should see. But it is a powerful, powerful reminder of what Jesus suffered for us. And many times when I take communion, I play that scene in my mind as I hold the bread and the cup to remind me the depths to which Jesus Christ went so that I could become a child of God. So on our journey to Easter, it takes us to what happened at Good Friday. So let's not rush by Calvary in order to get to Easter. So today, on our journey to Easter, let's stop at Calvary and see what happened there. Will you pray with me? Father, today we remember the supreme sacrifice of our beautiful King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And led like a lamb to the slaughter, clothed in humility and grace, he willingly offered himself to the death so that we might live forever. And we're truly grateful. We're truly grateful for the extent of his love that was stretched out on a cruel wooden cross. We dwell on the pain he bore for us, and we are more than grateful for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we enter Holy Week, let us live in the wonder of Holy Week, the mystery of Holy Week, the goodness of Good Friday, the marvel of his grace shown on Good Friday. So as we approach Holy Week, I pray that we would be not rushed by Calvary, but pause to see what happened there on our way to celebrate Easter. Now pour through me the gift of preaching. Take these human words and use them to speak to us today and give each of us just the message you want us to hear because we pray it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. History is filled with the famous last words spoken by dying people. The last words of Karl Marx, Marx, the father of communism, he was dying and his housekeeper said to him, Mr. Marx, let me write down your last words so people will remember them. And he said, get out, get out, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. <laughs> 
the great preacher, English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his last words were, Jesus died for me. And then Thomas Edison, his last words were, it's very beautiful over there. Now, Winston Churchill's last words really baffle me. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> and then he died. Can you imagine? Pope John Paul II, his last words were, let me go to the house of the Father. Buddy Rich, you young people will not remember him, only us old people remember who he was. Buddy Rich was probably the greatest jazz drummer in, in history. And he played with all the big bands, and he was a great jazz drummer. He died after surgery in 1987, and as he was being prepared for surgery, a nurse asked him, Mr. Rich, is there anything you can't take? And he said, yeah, country music. <laughs> that was his last words. <laughs> Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, according to his sister, his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Ted Todd Beamer on Flight 93, United Flight 93, September the 11th, as he and those guys stormed that cockpit to try to take it away from the terrace, his last words to them were, are you ready? And then those famous words now, let's roll, let's roll. I have told you before, my mother has been dead now for 72 years, I wasn't quite four when she died, but I remember her last words to me like it was yesterday. They brought me into her room. We talked, brought me into her room, and we talked. I don't remember all that was said, but I do remember her last words to me. She said, you always be a good boy, and you always go to church. Now, Mama, I have always gone to church. I do think that calling to the ministry began at her bedside. Now, of all the famous last words, none surpassed Jesus' last words on the cross. Now, these statements are not only important for what was said, they're important for who said them, and they are important from where they were said. Jesus uttered seven famous last words from the cross. Look at the screen. First, Jesus prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Second, to the thief beside of him who acknowledged who he was. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Third, he provides for the care of his mother. He commends her to John the apostle, Jesus' best friend. And he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then those fourth words, strange words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And fifth, the cry, I thirst. And then those words of triumph and victory, it is finished. And then the prayer of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, of those seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross, three of them are prayers, prayers to his Father. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I want to look at these cross prayers 
because in them, I believe, we find the crux of the Christian gospel. So let's start with the prayer of forgiveness. The prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, I believe that this prayer is one of the highest peaks of all of the Bible because this is a prayer of unconditional love. This is a prayer of grace, a portrait of grace, amazing grace. And folks, this prayer is the measuring stick by which we engage our forgiveness to one another. Now, if you ever have to deal with the issue, should I forgive this person who hurt me? If you ever have to deal with that, then just remember the image of Jesus hanging on the cross saying about those who were murdering him, Father, forgive them. True story. Joe Smith was his name. He was a 16-year-old high school freshman. He was a remarkable kid. He was kind. He was compassionate. And he was a committed Christian. And his faith was radiant, and it was attractive, and it was real. And he had the kind of personality and a smile that would just light up the room when he walked in. And everyone loved Joe Smith. But tragedy struck. It was the end of the spring semester, and the high school yearbooks had come out, and it was the, his first yearbook as a freshman, and, and he was so proud and excited to get his friends to sign it. Remember how that was? And he and his friends were in the cafeteria, and they were signing each other's yearbook, and it was one of those high school moments that you remember for the rest of your life. But when he came out of the cafeteria, one of his classmates, a guy by the name of Tim, whose family could not afford to buy a yearbook, tried to snatch Joe's yearbook out of his hand. Now, Joe was not a combative person at all, but it was his first yearbook, and he would not let go of it. And Tim lost control doubled up his fist and swung as hard as he could at Joe. Joe saw the punch coming and he tried to miss it and it landed, it hit him with full force right in his esophagus, crushing it and Joe went down unconscious. Joe was rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery, but he died in surgery. It just didn't seem possible. 16 years old and gone like that over a $10 yearbook. That night, shocked and grief-stricken, Joe's family and friends gathered at the Smith's house. There was a knock at the door. Joe's dad answered it. There was a man who handed him an envelope with the simple words, I'm sorry. Joe's dad opened the envelope and there was a note. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I'm so sorry my son killed your Joe. I'm blind. My husband deserted me. I'm trying to raise eight children alone. I did not have $10 for a yearbook for Tim. Please, please, please forgive. Signed, Tim's mother. Tim was arrested. Tim's mother could not afford an attorney to represent him in court. And guess what happened? Joe's parents hired an attorney to represent him in court. 
When Tim was convicted of second-degree manslaughter and sent to a youth detention center, it was the Smiths who regularly visited him. It was the Smiths who would take his mama to visit him. And it was the Smiths who called him regularly on the phone. And it was the Smiths who sent him regular cards and letters of encouragement. And when Tim was finally released, it was the Smiths who were there to pick him up and take him home to his mama. Now that is an amazing true story. Incredible forgiveness. Wow. You know, I had to ask myself, can I forgive like that? Ask yourself, could you forgive like that? It's sobering, isn't it? But you know where the Smiths got the ability to forgive that like that, don't you? They got it from Jesus. <laughs> they got it from Holy Week. They got it from Good Friday. They got it from the one who on the cross on Good Friday was nailed there by his enemies and he asked his father to forgive those who were murdering him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So if the question ever comes to your mind after you have been hurt, should I forgive that person? Then you just remember the crossroads of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The second cross prayer is a prayer of salvation. And it's those strange, strange words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at first glimpse, when many people read this, they wish it wasn't in the Bible. Because it doesn't sound like God and it's so unlike Jesus. But yet here is Jesus, strung on the cross, praying this prayer. So what in the world are we to make of it? Now, when you look into it, you find something very precious. And let me see if I can just sort of unpack it and find what is there. When I studied this, I found that there were three interpretations of this strange words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the first interpretation is that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 to affirm that he is the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. Now, of course, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people would be very familiar with Psalm 22 because it begins with the exact words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years before Good Friday, and yet it describes in amazingly precise detail the events on that day that we call Good Friday. Listen to this. Look at the screen. Verses 6 and 7. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 16. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Amazing. Verse 17 and 18. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And they did that right at the foot of Jesus' cross. Isn't that amazing? That's something that was written hundreds of years before described in exact detail what the crucifixion was going to be about. And then, oh, then verse 31. Thank God for verse 31. 
Verse 31, burst into praise and adoration. Look what it says. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So it may be that on the cross, Jesus was recalling Psalm 22, a picture that foretold what he was going to go through. And Jesus knew that Psalm 22 was a lament. It was a lament expressing deep, deep sorrow. But when you work your way through all of that sorrow and the details, you get down to verse 31 and it ends in triumph and praise and salvation. There's a second interpretation that I found. And it's, it is that Jesus in his suffering is finding strength then in quoting Psalm 22. Now, one scholar said, oh, this may be an attractive interpretation, but he didn't believe in a person in such agony and such suffering would be quoting Scripture. You can't have any fun when the scholar's around. Now, that scholar must have never been a pastor. And he must have never gone personally through the dark night of the soul. And 55 years of doing this, can you imagine now? 55 years. We just celebrated 47 years anniversary at First Church this last week, here for 47 years. I've seen it over and over and over in 55 years. That when people are in pain, when they are in agony, when they are in a crisis, they quote Scripture the most. And time and time again in hospital rooms and emergency rooms and in hospice centers and in funeral homes and in crisis, I find folks quoting, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I find them quoting, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I find them quoting, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I find them quoting a passage of scripture that I am asked so many times to read at funerals. Let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And then those wonderful words of Romans, the eighth chapter. It starts out, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that all things, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. And then that chapter ends with that amazing statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, Mr. Scholar, you are wrong, dead wrong. In the hardest times of the life of God's children, they are comforted. We are comforted by quoting the promises of Scripture. Amen. There's a third interpretation of this haunting prayer. And it is this. That Jesus didn't just feel forsaken by his Father. He was forsaken by his Father. Why did God the Father, God the Son forsake his son on the cross. 
Now, we can't comprehend that. We cannot begin to understand it. The great theologian Martin Luther, he wrestled with this and wrestled with this and wrestled with it. And finally, out of his confusion, he said, God forsaken by God, who can understand it? Now, if Jesus couldn't fully understand it, then I, I don't think any of us can fully understand it either. But at least we can say that it had something to do with what Jesus was doing on the cross. And what was Jesus doing on the cross? He was bearing our sins. He was carrying our sins. He was wearing our sins. Isaiah 53 6 said, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, I want you to imagine somewhere in the universe, there is a giant cesspool. And it contains all the sins that have ever been committed. And that cesspool is deep. And it's dark. And it's indescribably foul. All the deeds of all men and women, all people who have ever lived, all the sins that we've ever committed, that are floating in that cesspool. And there is constantly a river of filth that continues to replenish that vile mixture of all the evil deeds that we continue to commit. Now imagine. Jesus was on the cross, and that cesspool was emptied onto him. And all the foul of filth settles upon him. And it seems to not cease. It just seems to not stop. And it's toxic, and it is deadly, and it is filled with disease and pain and suffering. I am reading... The renowned preacher and scholar Fleming Rutledge's massive book simply called The Crucifixion. It took her 20 years to write it. She says, Jesus took upon himself the role of the ultimate other. He allowed himself to become less than human scum. All the evil impulses of the human race came to focus upon him and here is a holy righteous God looking down upon his son who has become sin for us and our holy righteous God could not look at it and he had to turn away from the sight who could bear to watch it Think of it. All the lust of the world was there. All the broken promises. All the murdering. All the killing. All the hatred between people. All the prejudice. All the theft was there. All the adultery. All the pornography. All the bitterness. All the greed. All the gluttony. All the child abuse. All the crime. All the cursing. All the human trafficking, every vile terrorist act, every school shooting, all of it 
was laid upon Jesus when he hung on the cross. Folks, that's why we have to go by Calvary. We cannot minimize the awful cost of our salvation. Now, now is it possible? Is it possible that some Christians have become tired of the cross? Yes, it is. Is it possible that some would rather hear about the celebration of Easter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we don't want to stop at Calvary. We want to go on to Easter. We want to get, we want to, get to our pastel closes there and says, and we want to get to our, our Easter bunnies and, and the peeps and chocolate rabbits and baby chickens. I don't understand what that has anything to do with Easter. And we want to get to the ham for Easter dinner. Now, now we're talking. <laughs> so it's, very, it's happening in our day. Listen to this. Listen to this. There's a professor, I cannot pronounce his name, at the University of Chicago. This is what he told some preachers gathered there. Any church or any preacher who keeps preaching on the cross is not going to grow. The preacher will not be a success and the church will not grow because in our culture, what we are interested in is success, not sacrifice. A pastor in San Francisco got up before his congregation some time ago and he said this, the cross has been the symbol of sacrifice and acceptance of pain and suffering and we're tired of it and we're not going to be a part of it anymore. And he proceeded to take the cross down from his church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of another century, he said this in his book, The Cross. He said, the cross, the death of our Lord upon the cross, is not something to be regretted. It is not something to be explained away. Nor is it something to be kept out of sight or hidden. Now, folks, without the awful pain of the cross, there would be no Easter to celebrate. It's like Fred Craddock used to tell us, there has to be a death before there can be a resurrection. There has to be a Good Friday before there can be an Easter. Without the cross of Good Friday, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cost of Good Friday, there would be no salvation. Without the cost of Good Friday, there would be no forever to celebrate on Easter Sunday morning. And without the cross, we would still be in our sins. See, folks, don't rush by Calvary to get to Easter. Stop and think. It cost Jesus everything to redeem us. And that cross from that cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's for all the lonely people in the world. All the abandoned and abused child. All the little widows by themselves. All the little widowers by themselves. All the divorcees struggling to make ends meet. That mother who is standing over her suffering child. That father who is out of work. The parents who are left alone. The prisoners in their cells. The anguish, who, the, the aged who are languishing in nursing homes, wives and families abandoned by their husband, and singles who celebrate their birthdays alone. And this is the word from the cross to you. No one 
has ever been so alone as Jesus was. You will never have to be forsaken. Jesus went to hell for us so we wouldn't have to go. Now, if after everything I have said, you still don't understand those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. None of us on earth fully understand them. But rest in this truth. Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that we would never be forsaken by God. Now, take your breath. We've dealt with some heavy stuff, and you've been very attentive. So let's do a little review, give you a chance to get your breath, move around your seat, and look at your watch and say, how long is this going to go on? <laughs> All right, let's do a little review. The prayer of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then the prayer of salvation. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And then the prayer of trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this was not the first time Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He just added Father to it. Actually, it's a statement from Psalm 31.5 that says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He just added Father to it. Now, Jesus' mother taught him to say this prayer. Jewish children were taught to recite this verse before they went to sleep at night. And Jewish children probably was the first scripture that they learned. And Mary, Jesus' mother, taught him to say this prayer as a child. He had prayed it hundreds of times at bedtime. And now he's hanging on the cross. His life is ebbing away. And Jesus reverts back to this little simple prayer of his childhood. His strength is gone. He is tortured beyond recognition. And yet in his mind, he recalls the words he had learned as a little boy. And he prayed them. Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. It's the first century version of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. A prayer of trust. A prayer of complete trust in the Father. And Jesus prayed it. And then he breathed his last. Now, folks, this, this is a prayer that we can say daily because I hopefully I believe that we have learned or will learn to trust God completely we can say this prayer every day I encourage you to do it now I try to say this prayer before I go to sleep but I have a problem Joyce says sometimes I'm asleep before the good night kiss is over <laughs> so it's a wonderful way to end the day Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, folks, we, we know that God has to take, God can take the power of the cross. As the old hymn says, the emblem of suffering and shame 
and turn it into a great symbol of victory. The greatest victory the world has ever known. See, God is in the business of taking Good Fridays and turning them into Easter Sunday mornings. And so like Jesus, we can pray this prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in absolute trust, knowing, as the songwriter says, many things about tomorrow I may not seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. Fred Craddock, one of the greatest preachers of all time, tells this interesting story. He said a man decided to cross a field, a muddy field, and he slipped and he fell into a deep, deep pit. He tried to get out as best as he could, but the pit was just absolutely too deep, and he could not get out the best he could. So then he began to cry out for someone to help me, help me, help me, help me. Well, a pop psychologist passed by and said, I really feel your pain. I empathize with you down there in that pit. A TV talk show host came by and said, well, when you get out of the pit, if you get out of the pit, you can come be on my show. And then a religious fanatic came by and said, looked down at him and said, my, my, my. You must be a great sinner because only great sinners fall into pits like this. My, my, my. A news reporter rushed up and said, well, can I have the exclusive story on your pit experience? An IRS agent stopped by and wanted to know if he'd paid his taxes on his pit. A neurotic came by and said to him, Well, if you think your pit's bad, you should see mine. (laughs) An optimist came by and said, things could get worse. A pessimist came by and said, things will get worse. And then a man came, a stranger. He saw his problem. That man could not get out of the pit on his own. He would die in that pit if he did not get help. And his heart went out to him. And he reached down as far as he could and took his hands and pulled him out of the pit and saved him from the pit. Oh, the fellow who was rescued was, was so grateful. He thanked him and he thanked him and he thanked this stranger and he thanked him again. And the stranger went his way and he ran into town to tell everyone what had happened and how he was saved from the pit. And his friends asked him, well, how did you get out? Well, a kind, gracious man reached down and pulled me out. Well, who was that man? It was Jesus. Well, how did you know it was Jesus? I know it was Jesus because he had nail prints in his hands. Folks, we don't have to reinvent the wheel of salvation like many are trying to do. All we have to do for salvation is place our hands in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the hope that transcends this dying world. We live and we die, but because of Good Friday and because of Easter Sunday morning, we pass into your loving hands to live forever. And Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for the death that you died for us on Good Friday. It's hard for us to grasp just what it all meant. But we thank you that it was for us. We thank you that you were dying in our place, bearing our sins. So as we rush to get to Easter, we pause to thank you for Good Friday. And we pray this in the name of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all God's people said,